In today's program, we talk to a local scientist who studies Alzheimer's disease. We'll hear about the symptoms and how memories are formed and lost. She also tells us that love is a drug. I didn't sing that. And she tells us what goes on in the brain when we fall in love. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Let's get to know one of our up-and-coming local scientists, Brienne Kent. She's a Gates Scholar and a PhD student in experimental psychology at the University of Cambridge. So be nice, Roger, or I'll submit you to one of her brain probes. Okay. Um, so what does Brienne study, really? Well, the neural basis of memory is her focus, which is how the brain stores and retrieves information. And her current research uses mice with modified genes to investigate Alzheimer's disease. I sat down with Brienne to find out more about her work and what inspired her to pursue this kind of research. Well, I've always been very interested in memory and learning. I have a lot of experience teaching. Um, my parents were both elementary school teachers, so I've always been very interested in how, how we remember things. And as I studied uh, psychology and neuroscience, I realized just how much of the brain and the brain processes that we still don't know. It's still a big mystery to most scientists, so there's just so much left to learn about learning. <laughs> so it's a very big topic, and we're lucky to have you here <laughs> And then Alzheimer's disease, how is memory affected in Alzheimer's disease? Memory loss is the number one symptom of Alzheimer's disease. Early on, it starts with people becoming confused or forgetfulness, but as the disease progresses, um, the, the memory loss is extensive and one of the most devastating symptoms because people can forget who they are, they can forget who their family is. We are basically our memories, so when we lose our memories, we almost lose our identity. Very sad. And who is most affected by Alzheimer's disease? Um, women, actually, are most affected by Alzheimer's disease, but the elderly. So you get some people get early-onset Alzheimer's disease when they're in their 50s, but one in six people will get Alzheimer's disease that are over the age of 80. That's scary. It's That's huge. Common. Yeah, there's half a million people in the UK right now suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And it's devastating because with all of our medical advances, people can live 20, 25, 30 years after they develop Alzheimer's disease, not knowing their family and, and being otherwise healthy, but having no memory of who they are and, and things that are important to them. And hard, too, for the family members oh, looking after. Devastating. There's a lot of research actually showing that Alzheimer's disease is harder on the families and the caretakers than it is on the person. So what are you doing to study Alzheimer's? So what I'm doing is, I guess I, I'm attacking the question from two angles. I'm looking at how the brain, how the healthy brain forms memories, trying to understand how memories are formed, but then also looking at or hoping that by learning how the brain forms memories, then we could have hints as to what is going wrong in Alzheimer's disease and what is causing the memory loss in Alzheimer's disease. Okay. And so I'm studying the basic science of learning and memory, but I'm also studying mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, hoping that we can find a transgenic model that best represents or better represents patients with Alzheimer's disease. The same type of memory impairments that we see in patients, we're hoping to also see in a mouse model. 
Yeah. That's interesting. So why why mice? Because they look pretty different from us humans. Yes. Well, the good thing about mice is we know so much about their genetics. But geneticists are able to insert human genes and human genes that have been associated with Alzheimer's disease and increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, insert these specific genes into the mice so that the mice develop the specific hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease, the tau tangles, the amyloid plaques, and the cognitive deficits. Tau tangles, that's a funny word. That's a protein of one of the genes that's involved? Yeah, it it is a protein, and when you look at... um, It used to be that you could only diagnose Alzheimer's disease, which is a specific type of dementia, but you could only diagnose it as Alzheimer's post-mortem when you look at the brains because the patients with Alzheimer's disease actually have these protein structures that are tangled up, which they call tau tangles um, in the brain cells, and then amyloid plaques, which is another type of protein that show up as hallmarks on the images. And then mice. Okay, so you have these transgenic mice that you're hoping will show symptoms of Alzheimer's. And how do you test this? How do you find out if they're, if they're a good model or not? So we're using um, a battery of cognitive tests, hoping studying different types of learning and memory. So some researchers look to see if these models show those hallmarks that I was just talking about, the amyloid plaques and the tau tangles. But the approach that we're taking is trying to find models that have the same cognitive deficits, the same memory impairments as people. So what we do is we test different types of their performance on different types of memory tasks and develop different tasks hoping to pinpoint the specific type of memory that the memory impairment that people show. So you're a mouse taskmaster. I am a mouse taskmaster, yes. <laughs> okay, what kind of tasks do you assign your mice? So right now we're working with touch screens specifically, which is basically like giving rats and mice iPads. Excellent. Yes, and what's um, beneficial about these tasks is we hope that they're more translatable, meaning what we're testing in mice and rats are the same type of cognitive processes that we would test with humans. We can, using the iPads, we can use the same stimuli and the exact same tasks that humans are given, human patients. So it's, it's a way to make what we learn in the rodent models more translatable to humans. And is there an app for that? An app? <laughs> Not at the moment. You might consider contacting Apple to suggest uh, mice using iPads as a commercial. <laughs> I did see at uh, one of the zoos in the United States, I can't remember which zoo now, but they were giving monkeys uh, iPads That's excellent. Yes. So Alzheimer's research, very important, and your research specifically, why, what would you tell people in terms of why it's important to be doing this? Why it's important in the big picture is we don't have a cure and we don't have effective treatments. And this is a huge problem with the aging society that we have right now. More and more people are going to uh, develop Alzheimer's disease. Right now it's one in six over 80 is costing a lot of money and it's devastating for the patients and the family. So we really need to find better treatments and and a cure. And one way is to find better animal models. So by testing these transgenic mice and hoping to find one that appropriately represents what is going on in the human brain, then we can test treatments. It's the first step.
And in your free time, you still research neurobiology, yes. <laughs> right? You had an interesting feature June 17th in the Cambridge University Science Magazine, Blue Sci, entitled Your Love is My Drug. Sounds like a big departure from Alzheimer's. <laughs> it Tell is. Me about that. It is. Yeah, so I, when I was doing my master's degree, I took um, a relationships class in the psychology department. And as a behavioral neuroscientist, I'm always interested in the what's going on in the brain that underlies behaviors. And obviously, love is a behavior that affects all of us. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully affects all of us. So yeah, I was just really interested in what is going on in the brain when we fall in love. And more specifically, as we were defining in my class that I was taking, um, we were defining love. And as we were defining love and the behavioral characteristics, it was very, seemed very similar to addiction. Once I was primed with that thought, it was very obvious that in society, I'm not the first one to make that connection. Um, okay, so you did some <laughs> research into this. You were looking yeah. at the current literature. Yeah. And what did you find? Take us through the basics of what happens in our brain when we become addicted to a drug. So addiction research, I'd say one of the most common theories is that there's this hypersensitization. So there's an initial rewarding substance, something that makes us feel good. And the more times you're exposed to this substance, the more times you ingest it, the more times you take it, there's this hypersensitization, meaning that it becomes more rewarding. So it, uh, there's a network in the brain, a neural circuitry, called the dopaminergic reward circuit. And the primary signal is dopamine. So that's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. That's what makes us feel good when we eat, when we have sex. Uh, it's dopamine. So how is it similar then when we become addicted to a drug and when we fall in love? Behaviorally, it's very similar. Um, they're both uh, dependencies. You either grow dependent on the substance or you grow dependent on another individual when you fall in love. Your priorities change. Both are life-altering experiences because it changes your thoughts and your focus to being with your partner or to getting the substance. And what's similar about love and drug addiction is they both seem to engage this dopaminergic reward system. And how do you know that? How did researchers discover that? So one line of research looked at brain imaging, where functional brain imaging using, using fMRI. Um, Which stands for? Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. Okay, so you're taking pictures of the brain, and you, what are you seeing? As people are active, so it's actually showing different activation. When they're looking at these functional imaging studies, they look at people's brains as they, are, as they talk about their loved ones or as they are shown pictures of their partners or people that they're in love with. And then when they look at people who are addicted to drugs, they show cues of the drug and what they have found was that there's very similar neural signatures. So the same brain regions, or at least similar brain regions, there's overlapping of these signatures. They're not identical, um, but they're very similar enough to suggest that there is similar activation going on when someone's in love and when someone's addicted to a drug. Okay, so similar areas are lighting up on the screen. Yes, yeah, similar areas are lighting up in this, on the screen, and 
similar uh, chemical messengers or how the brain sends information from one region to the other, like dopamine, is common for both love and drug addiction. Okay, and when you say drug, what does that include? I mean, for instance, does my chocolate or caffeine addiction count? So caffeine is a drug. It is uh, the most commonly used drug worldwide. It's legal, of course, but doesn't mean that it isn't a drug. Uh, A drug is anything that you ingest and that changes your physiology. And why do you think, so a drug addiction, I mean, things like caffeine, we can see how they benefit us. They might help us to work a bit harder, get us, you know, more awake when we're tired, slogging to work in the early morning. Um, But other things like heroin addiction, they can have some pretty nasty symptoms that suggest that it might be a maladaptive behavior. Yeah. So how does something that can be so destructive evolve? Well... We need the dopaminergic reward system because it encourages positive behaviors like eating and having sex and keeping our species alive. We need this underlying brain circuitry, and drug addiction seems to take advantage of that system in a maladaptive way, but because we need that system, it's not like evolution's going to select against it. So do you have recommendations for better things to increase our dopamine? (laughs) Well, running. um, A lot of people, runners will tell you they get their runners high or eating chocolate or eating um, comfort foods. Or falling in love. Falling in love. Absolutely. So that takes us full circle to your inspiration, Keisha. Kesha, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Your love is my drug. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, how can people find your article, and any other helpful information on the neurobiology of love and drug addiction. So my article is on the Blue Psy website, which you said is the Cambridge University Science magazine. Um, And if anyone is interested in love and drug addiction or just studying the neurobiology of love, I highly recommend Helen Fisher's book called Why We Love. It was an excellent read. I really enjoyed it. Um, especially the the chapter looking at love in in different animals, in giraffes and dogs, and showing very similar um, behaviors as humans and love, and I thought it was fascinating. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here, Brienne. You've taught us a lot today about the neurobiology of love and drug addiction. It's made me think of it in very different ways. (laughs) I'm going to go get some chocolate and coffee and maybe go for a run. And good luck with your continuing research. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thanks again to Brianne Kent from the University of Cambridge Experimental Psychology Department. Hey Chris, can I tell you about what our aging grandpa said about Alzheimer's? Only if you let me play Kesha's Your Love Is My Drug sound clip, Roger. You really want to play that? Yes. Anyway, the story is that the family were chatting about Alzheimer's after supper one time, as you do. And Grandpa, who's usually a silent man, he stopped the conversation to ask, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, what's Alzheimer's? I knew about that, but I've forgotten what it is. Wah, wah. <laughs> That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>